Are you curious about what it's like working in healthcare today? Do you believe in the power of storytelling? I'm Dr. Emily Silverman, the host of the Nocturnist podcast, where healthcare workers share personal stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Each episode, whether a compelling performance from one of our live shows, an intimate series of audio diaries from one of our documentaries, or an engaging conversation with guests such as book authors or filmmakers, aims to connect, provoke, and inspire. Learn more at thenocturnist.com or subscribe to The Nocturnist wherever you get your podcasts. The overdose crisis in the U.S. is as bad as it's ever been. CDC says that 100,000 people died of drug overdoses over the past year. That is the highest yearly death toll from drugs ever recorded in the U.S. Let that sink in. In the last two decades, more than one million people have died from drug overdoses. Now, to save lives, the Biden administration is pushing a once taboo strategy. It's called harm reduction. The goal is to keep drug users safe even as they continue using drugs. And it's having a moment. Today, how harm reduction went from fringe to federal policy and what kind of impact we can expect it to have on our overdose epidemic. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Fifty years ago, President Richard Nixon declared war on drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. It was a national strategy to stop the buying and selling of illegal drugs. The president's message was clear. People should not use drugs, and people who did should be punished. This thinking dominated federal policy for decades. Here's what then-Senator Joe Biden said in 1989. We have to hold every drug user accountable because if there were no uh, no drug users, there would be no appetite for drugs and there'd be no market for them. Now, here's what President Biden said about addiction in 2021. To those still struggling, I want you to know that I see you and we're going to beat this thing together. The rhetoric has clearly softened. So we asked producer Ryan Levy to dig into what's driving these changes and whether it's translating into different policies. Ryan, thanks for being here. Happy to do it. For a long time, presidents have framed drug use as a crime. But over the last decade or so, it seems like that attitude has given way to emphasizing treatment. Yeah, that's right. Um, But as more and more people die, a growing number of experts and advocates say we've got to figure out how to keep people who use drugs alive. That's the harm reduction approach. This idea that instead of punishing people or even getting them into treatment, we should first keep them safe when they use drugs. And, And when did this idea, Ryan, pop up in the U.S.? Well, the movement really took off, actually, around the time of that clip you played from Senator Biden, around the late 80s. It's the collision of the two great epidemics in America today, AIDS and drugs. HIV and AIDS were spreading fast among people who use drugs. Right now, some 250,000 drug addicts nationwide are infected with the AIDS virus. And more than half the people carrying the virus eventually come down with AIDS and die. It was a really scary time. 
Ricky Bluthenthal was a young researcher in those days working with injection drug users in Oakland. The data we had suggested that probably one in 10 people who inject drugs had HIV in the country. And in cities like New York, Miami, and San Juan, Puerto Rico, that number was closer to half. Ricky's spent his career studying drug use, and he's now an associate dean and professor at the University of Southern California. 30 years ago, his job was to convince drug users to get tested for HIV. Tests he knew had a good chance of coming back positive. We were handing out death sentences. Remember, Dan, treatments were just starting to come out, so there weren't many options. And many people viewed drug users as criminals, you know, so there was very little compassion out there. And that just did not sit right with Ricky. I wasn't willing to exist in a world where I knew this was happening and not do something to try and prevent it. So Ricky helped start a needle exchange where people could get fresh syringes, making it less likely they'd share infected needles. This was one of the earliest examples of harm reduction in the U.S., Dan, and was also illegal. I think we got arrested probably 10 to 15 times for for operating the program, but we just wouldn't stop. Wait, he got arrested for running a needle exchange? That's right. In the late 70s, the Carter administration convinced most states to make handing out needles for drug use a crime, uh, which meant that when needle exchanges like Ricky's started popping up in the 80s, early 90s, they were breaking the law. And even in states where these exchanges were legal, Congress wanted to limit their spread and preemptively banned federal funding for them in 1988. Let me get this straight. You've got all these drug users out there getting AIDS, and you've got folks like Ricky trying to protect them by giving them clean needles. And policymakers' response is to say, we're not going to help you. We might even arrest you. Pretty much. That was that was where they were at at that point. Uh, that stance did finally start to soften under President Obama. When we talk about opioid abuse as the public health problem that it is, more people will seek the help that they need. That's when, for the first time, Congress allowed state and local governments to use federal money for needle exchanges. Um, And the Obama administration also saw harm reduction as a way to fight what was then a growing overdose crisis, you know. So they made federal dollars available to buy and distribute naloxone, too, uh, which is a medication that can reverse an opioid overdose. Can you break this down? How, Ryan, did we go from a place where harm reduction was outlawed in many places, to the Obama administration starting to fund this work? It's a good question. One I was curious about too, Dan. Uh, So I called Maya Salovitz. She's a journalist and a former drug user herself who just published the first History of Harm Reduction, a book called Undoing Drugs. And she told me one of the biggest factors in this shift was race. Once people we cared about, a.k.a. white people, started being seen as victims of overdose and and people who inject drugs, suddenly harm reduction was really acceptable. She said in the 80s and 90s, drug use was seen as, you know, a quote unquote black problem. And the response was this war on drugs approach that put a lot of people of color behind bars. But while researching her book, Maya discovered that the opioid crisis in the 2000s changed the face of drug use for a lot of people. Empowered white middle and upper class parents began losing kids to overdose or just having them be addicted. And they were horrified by this whole, you know, just arrest them over and over and over. So the parents were just like, this doesn't work. 
Maya and other experts I talked with said there were obviously other factors too, right? Growing evidence behind harm reduction, pressure from advocates. But this fact that more well-off white people, including, we should say, policymakers themselves, saw this as a problem in their own communities, this made harm reduction much more acceptable to them. And now, as we're seeing this crisis get worse and worse in recent years, the Biden administration is pushing that acceptance to the next level. Very good. Ryan, when we come back, we'll get to harm reduction's moment in the spotlight and the ongoing debate over what should happen next. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you curious about what it's like working in healthcare today? Do you believe in the power of storytelling? I'm Dr. Emily Silverman, the host of the Nocturnist podcast, where healthcare workers share personal stories of joy, sorrow, and self-discovery. Each episode, whether a compelling performance from one of our live shows, an intimate series of audio diaries from one of our documentaries, or an engaging conversation with guests such as book authors or filmmakers, aims to connect, provoke, and inspire. Learn more at thenocturnist.com or subscribe to The Nocturnist wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Before the break, Tradeoff's producer Ryan Levy told us that under President Obama, the federal government began to embrace harm reduction, ways to make it easier to use illegal drugs in safe ways. For decades, mainstream America frowned on these policies as being too permissive. But in just the last seven years, the number of needle exchanges has tripled to more than 400. Naloxone, the drug used to reverse opioid overdoses, is available at libraries, schools, and handed out to drug users on the street. Ryan, you're saying that the Biden administration is now going even further in their support of this strategy. That's right, Dan. And we can actually pinpoint the exact moment when this happened. Good morning and welcome to Healthcare for the Homeless. Uh, Healthcare for the Homeless. It was the end of October 2021 sunny 70 degree day in Baltimore and a bunch of reporters had gathered at this health clinic to listen to Biden's health secretary Javier Becerra do something no one in his job had done before. Today we're talking about something very important because we are in a crisis. Becerra stood at a makeshift podium wearing a gray suit, gray tie, reading off note cards and he said that decades of stigmatizing and punishing drug users was over that he was there in Baltimore to announce a new strategy. A strategy that's different, that changes course, and that gives people the help they need. Then with, I swear, all the excitement of a DMV worker checking your paperwork, Dan, Javier Becerra made history. Our strategy consists of four priorities. Primary prevention, harm reduction, evidence-based treatment, 
and recovery support. Harm reduction was now a core pillar of U.S. drug policy. And in his speech, the secretary punched the point home. Evidence-based harm reduction strategies save lives. All right. So what's the Biden administration planning to do, Ryan, that's different? So the administration is continuing to support needle exchanges and naloxone, both of which we saw right under Obama and Trump. What's new is state and local governments are now allowed to use federal money to buy fentanyl test strips. These let people check to see if their drugs are laced with fentanyl, which is that very potent synthetic opioid fueling our latest overdose increase. And Dan, the other big thing here is that HHS has made $30 million in grants available to states, local governments, nonprofits, just for harm reduction. What's the big deal about $30 million, Ryan? Like in the context of the overall budget, obviously that's really modest. Obviously, you're right, and especially when you think about, you know, the federal government spends $40 billion on treatment, prevention, and drug enforcement, so $30 million is tiny in comparison. But this is the first time the federal government has said, you know, hey, needle exchanges, hey, small community naloxone group, we want to give you money specifically. You know, the way that I think of it is it's the difference between you can get this money for harm reduction versus you have to do harm reduction to get this money. Okay, so so really what's important about this is that it's a signal and the signal is uh, the Biden administration is opening its mind and uh, starting to reach into their wallets. That That's a good way of putting it. And, you know, the administration really is being pretty explicit. Whenever we see officials from the administration talking about the overdose crisis, they say they want to see more harm reduction. Uh, In December, they even hosted a two-day summit on this. And there is one more specific policy, Dan, where the administration may be about to do something that we have truly never seen before. It's a first here in the United States. A major city has officially sanctioned supervised drug injection sites. Just after Thanksgiving last year, New York City opened the country's first locally sanctioned supervised injection or supervised consumption sites. Users bring their own drugs to shoot up while supervised by trained staff with clean needles, medication to reverse an overdose, or the option to get clean. These have been around in Europe, Canada, Australia for decades, but they've never been a thing in the U.S. because under what's known as the crack house statute, U.S. law prohibits anyone from running a facility for people to use illegal drugs. I I remember there was a uh, site here in Philly that was going to open, but the Trump administration cracked down on it and it never happened. Right. They actually sued uh, the organization that was going to start that to stop them from opening. And the Biden Justice Department is going to have to decide in the next couple of months if they want to keep blocking that Philly site. Uh, But right now, the administration is letting the New York sites run. And to be clear, those sites are not eligible for any federal funding. But if the administration ends up endorsing or even just, you know, ignoring them, uh, experts I talked to said there are as many as, you know, half a dozen cities and states waiting in the wings ready to open their own. Rhode Island has become the first state in the country to authorize so-called supervised injection sites. The conversation over safe drug consumption sites in Seattle has been renewed. This building in San Francisco's Tenderloin might be boarded up and covered in graffiti now. But the mayor would like the city to buy it so it could possibly be used as a supervised drug use site. For harm reduction advocates, Dan, these sites really embody the movement's basic philosophy, right? People are going to use drugs. 
That's a given. So we have to keep them safe. The alternative, they say, is unethical. The alternative is people are going to use in a McDonald's bathroom or they're going to use in a parking lot or an alley alone or they're going to use in a hotel room alone and die. Kim Sue is an assistant professor of medicine and addiction specialist at Yale, and she's also the medical director of the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Kim says she thinks we may be at a tipping point. You know, the spiking death rate and the administration's openness to new ideas has pushed harm reduction more into the mainstream than she's ever seen. But with just New York's consumption sites online and the modest boost in federal funding that we're seeing right now, she's keeping her expectations in check. It's not a panacea. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if if we don't see a decrease in overdose deaths for a while, you know, and and I am trying to be measured about it. Ryan, as the administration goes down this path, how are we going to know if it's working? Like, what does harm reduction success look like? So it depends a little on who you ask. I asked Keith Humphreys, uh, who studies addiction at Stanford and was a drug policy advisor in the Obama administration, and he told me that there are two camps. Both of them support harm reduction as a way to keep drug users safe and alive. And for one camp, that's enough. If, you know, 50,000 people use the needle exchange and they don't get HIV and they don't ever go to treatment, that's okay. You know, that's not the point. It's to keep them alive today. But the other camp wants more. It's good to do, say, needle exchange and stop somebody from getting AIDS, um, but ultimately we'd love to see them not be using drugs at all. For this camp, harm reduction is a gateway to treatment and hopefully not doing drugs anymore at all. Connecting people to treatment is one of the biggest selling points of harm reduction, Dan. You hear it all the time. One of the big phrases is, you know, dead people don't recover. And to be clear, folks in that first camp, you know, the just keep people alive camp, They like it. They love it when harm reduction leads to treatment. They just don't see it as necessary for it to be a success. So even among the folks who agree, who all love harm reduction, there's this dispute over what the end goal should be. Ryan, what kind of harm reduction evidence is out there on these two different measures of success, saving lives and connecting people to treatment? There's pretty strong evidence out there, Dan. Needle exchanges significantly cut the likelihood of someone getting HIV, hepatitis C. The drug naloxone, which can reverse opioid overdoses, has overturned hundreds of thousands of them. Now, with supervised consumption sites, we know less. I thought Bo Kilmer, who directs the Drug Policy Research Center at RAND, put it really well. So I think at the end of the day, I'm sure that you know a supervised consumption site, uh, it's going to save some lives and it's going to reduce infections, but I can't tell you how much. And, and what about whether harm reduction leads to actual treatment? Well, we know people do get referred to treatment from consumption sites. Uh, it is unclear how big a difference the sites make for this. We have better evidence on this for needle exchanges. Several studies show that people who use needle exchanges are more likely to enter treatment. In fact, one study shows that they're five times more likely to do it. I guess the evidence suggests, regardless of the camp that you're in, there's a harm reduction policy that meets your own measure of success. But for policymakers to really understand the impact of this, we also have to think about access, like who actually gets the services. 
This is a really important point, Dan, because we're actually seeing overdose rates increase the most among black Americans. And there's evidence that people of color actually have less access to naloxone and needle exchanges. But interestingly, the Biden administration sees its push for harm reduction as part of a broader effort to address disparities like this. Okay. And and what about rural parts of the country? You know, places that are often more conservative. Well, we have seen more conservative states like Idaho, Kentucky, for instance, legalize needle exchanges and embrace naloxone in recent years. You know, but it's true, Dan, most of those 400 plus needle exchanges are in cities. And experts I talked with said something like a supervised consumption site, that's going to work best when it's, you know, in the neighborhood, walking distance, which makes it a tougher fit for less urban areas. Okay. So before policymakers really move forward with this, they've got to understand a couple of things. What success looks like, who they're helping, and also, importantly, consider downsides. I know, Ryan, the the big concern historically is that harm reduction just enables drug use. Is that thinking going away at all? It's definitely still out there. We've heard it in places considering consumption sites. Isn't this just taxpayers paying for enabling the lifestyle of addicts instead of getting them the treatment they need so that they are no longer addicts? And we know that in parts of West Virginia and Indiana, some needle exchanges actually shut down last year after elected officials pushed back on them. I have a hard time handing a needle to somebody that I know they're they're going to hurt themselves with. There's no evidence needle exchanges or supervised consumption sites encourage or increase drug use. There's also little evidence behind the other big concern we often hear, Dan, which is that crime will spike in the neighborhoods around these facilities. Despite all that, these two arguments almost always come up when communities talk about harm reduction. Listening to you, it makes it pretty clear that even though the rhetoric is changing at the federal level and that there's action from the Biden administration that is unprecedented, there's still a lot of resistance out there to all this. That's right. It's definitely not smooth sailing. But based on my reporting, it seems clear to me that there is less resistance than there used to be. A lot less resistance, honestly. You know, policymakers are considering things that used to be unthinkable. It seems like they're acknowledging that this, you know, tough love approach of the last 50 years just hasn't worked that well. The problem has gotten worse, and because of that, more people are ready to try something different. Ryan Levy, thanks so much for this story. This is great. Thank you, Dan. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. In less than six months, America is getting a new phone number. It's a hotline for mental health emergencies that anyone, anywhere can dial with just three digits, 988. The goal, better help for people struggling with suicide, addiction, schizophrenia. The hurdles are immense. We have funded mental health this way for decades. It is pennies here, pennies there. If 988 is executed the way 911 is executed, people will die. My biggest fear is that we're going to have 51 versions of that. Next week on Tradeoffs, we kick off a special series about people's high hopes for this new national hotline and the barriers that could dash those big dreams. Thanks for listening to Tradeoffs. 
If you've just discovered us, remember to subscribe to our feed so you never miss an episode. Subscribing is free and easy on whichever podcast app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. The Tradeoffs team is producers Ryan Levy and Andrea Perdomo, executive director Jessica Silverman, communications manager Nora Tahiri, operations assistant Jamie Song, senior health policy editor Sarah Thomas, sound designer Andrew Perella, executive editor Dan Gorenstein, and senior producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks this week to Bo Kilmer. Additional thanks to Mia Antizo. Leo Baletsky, Magdalena Kerta, Peter Davidson, Corey Davis, Don Desjardins, Amanda Lattimore, Jody Manns, Marlene Martin, Ryan McNeil, Eliza Meta, David Murray, Kellen Rossoniello, Charlie Severance Medeiros, Bryce Pardo, Leslie Soon, and Eliza Wheeler. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Yesha Swinney Singh, Matthew Rutledge, Gina Upchurch, and Vanessa Frank. Tradeoffs is supported by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, West Health, the Better Care Playbook, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, the Sosose Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management Foundation. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of Tradeoffs staff, advisors, or funders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 